Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning at business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends, or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm here today with Scott Lynn, the CEO of Masterworks a platform that is democratizing the art world by offering shares and investments in iconic artworks. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm excited to get into your background. I was looking through your LinkedIn, as one does, and I saw that over the past 15 plus years, you've been a part, you know, founded, acquired, sold over a dozen tech companies. And my first question is like, who is Scott and why? Like, how did he even get into the space of wanting to be a part of so many tech companies? So maybe can we start like with your background of who you are? How'd you grow up? Who were you when you were like seven years old? Tell me that so I can understand who this person is. <laughs> I guess we're going way back in time. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I started my first internet company in high school. It was one of the uh, kind of the dot-com stories. So I wound up in a very strange way building the largest game on the internet at like age 17 or 18. Wow. So when I graduated from high school, we had 100 employees, um, you know, when I was 19, 20 years old, decided not to go to college and just just focus on building businesses. That was kind of my first technology company. Um, and from there, went to start a series of online advertising companies and then eventually moved into fintech and, and today Masterworks. Okay. What was that first game? Like, what did, what would I experience? It was, I think it was for people much older than you who might, might remember a game called uh, Punch the Monkey. Okay. It's like a sweepstakes game. It's the most popular ad campaign online in 97, 98. Yeah, really the first big game on the internet. Wow. I mean, okay, so I've talked to a couple founders who've started companies early back then. And they were like, told me horror stories of what it was like being 18, 19, managing all these employees. Were there any funny moments where you're like, damn, I have like a whole company right now and my friends are off to college living with their parents or whatever, and I'm managing a hundred people's lives. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I think it was like boot camp for being an entrepreneur, right? Like, because you're, you're a kid, you don't really know what you're doing. You're learning through experience. At that time, it was really interesting too. It wasn't like in today's world, you can hire people with very defined skill sets to solve certain problems. 
like in the late nineties, the technology, you were kind of hiring anyone you could and training them on everything. But there were, I mean, there, you know, we made mistakes every day. Um, and then obviously in March of 2000, the bubble burst, November of 2000 really was when our industry kind of, kind of came unwound. And that was, uh, it was an amazing experience to go through. Like I learned more during, during that than probably anything else. Yeah. But yeah, definitely, definitely difficult. So tell me about the move from building games to then moving into fintech and now fine art. Like, what did that look like? Yeah. So as I as I started different companies, uh, you know, I eventually made money personally, and I started collecting art. At what age? You know, I I, I bought my first great painting. I think when I was. 20 years old. Okay, that's just advanced. Who are you? 20 years old, you're like, I'm going to buy some fine art. <laughs> yeah, that was, so, I, so I had a mother who was a uh, who's an artist. I kind of grew up with art books. So I always, I always liked art, but there wasn't really an art market back then. There's a whole bunch of reasons why, why that is that we can talk about, but, but the market really didn't start until, you know, after 2000, at least viewing it from an investment perspective. So I bought this painting by an artist named Mark Chagall, uh, titled Le Pont Neuf, which was like my first, my first great painting. Kept collecting over time and eventually built um, a pretty important collection and saw the value of that collection grow and had this idea maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago now, um, a lot with, with, I think, in the context of blockchain to take this asset class that was appreciating, but the only way you could, could invest in it is to buy a multi-million dollar painting and basically securitize it so people can buy shares and paintings. So that that was the original genesis of Masterworks. That's kind of where the idea came from. I think a lot of people say that a lot of good ideas come from people building products they wish they had. And that's sort of what I've done here, right? Like I've, I've really built the product that I wish I had um, as a collector many years ago to make the asset class accessible and, and easy to understand by people that, that don't really know anything about art. Yeah, I love that. So how many pieces of artwork do you personally have or own? Without it being maybe in masterworks terms of like how much you're a part of, like actually in your house today where you can like touch and feel it. Yeah. So my, my collection is actually not big in terms of number of, of objects, um, but it's a very focused collection on what's called abstract expressionism. So these are artists like Pollock, Rothko, Klein, de Kooning, Frankenthaler, um, really the first artist in American history that started painting in an abstract way. That's kind of what I built my collection around. So it's a very, very uh, focused collection on those those group of artists. And I, I try to just collect A-plus examples from each of those people. Very cool. Okay, so walk me through the process. I'm a potential new customer in Masterworks. I mean, what does it look like if you're me coming on for the first time? Yeah, so we, we try to distill it down into frameworks that people already understand from other investing investing uh, classes, right? So if you're if you're a new person and you come to the Masterworks website, you create an account and you schedule a call with the financial advisor. The financial advisor will talk to you about how you're investing today, if you're investing today, what your risk tolerance is, and then make a recommendation for allocating to art generally. Depends on the investor. It depends on their on their risk tolerances. But we generally recommend that people allocate a couple percent of a portfolio to art to you know numbers as large as, as 10% of a portfolio to art. And then we have lots of different painting-specific offerings on our website that you can invest in. And those are typically paintings between $1 and $30 million from artists like Picasso, Basquiat, Banksy, generally well-known names. And some of those offerings is pretty incredible. Like most of our offerings lately are selling out in less than a couple hours. They go pretty fast, but we have about one new offering a day now. 
So it really is the only platform that allows people to invest in art. We're the only firm that offers investment products uh, to gain exposure to the asset class at scale. There's really nothing that's been built like this before. Very cool. Okay. What if you're you're like me and you don't really know art and you get on the platform, is there a index fund 101 that I can invest in that maybe invest in, I don't know, like the top hundred that you're acquiring and yeah, doing that method? Yeah. So we don't, we don't have a fun product today that we really offer on the website. Um, these are, these are individual assets. So they're in individual paintings, but we give you data on each offering, right? So you'll see a particular painting by Basquiat, We'll show you how similar paintings have appreciated at 16, 17, 18% a year. We'll give you risk metrics for that artist mar market. So lots of people are making investment decisions in, in a matter of minutes. They're, they're not really making an investment decision based on the painting or the artist, but more on the data that we provide around that, around that offering. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I think that's an area too that, I mean, many people when I've talked, like I was telling them about this episode coming up, and I know we've had you on our other shows before as well, there's this misnomer that there's not a lot of historical data around art. And then I was looking through, you know, prepping for the show today and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of data from all the auctioning and everything that's going on that I think a lot of people don't really realize is there when it comes to like, how can I think about performance of this art? Yeah, I think that's right. It's super fascinating. So when you think about the the age of the asset class, I, I always tell people that Sotheby's, which is one of the largest auction houses in the art market, is 276 or 77 years old. So it, it was before going private, it was the oldest company on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, art has literally been traded at public auction for centuries. So you have these data sets that go back centuries on what paintings have sold for by specific artists, how those prices have changed over time, and roughly half of the art market trades at public auction today. So from a data perspective, you have a huge data set that you can analyze to understand how is Basquiat's market appreciating? What is the volatility in Basquiat's market? What do loss rates look like? It's really amazing. And, and you know, we, we talk about it a lot, but it's kind of amazing that we're the first ones to do this. Since the data set has been there, it's been clear for a long period of time that art is a good investment, but nobody's really made it investable. Yeah. So these pieces, when they're being auctioned, is it individuals who own them or like what does that look like behind the scenes of like who is actually holding on to these pieces of art that I'm coming in and you know owning one one hundredth or whatever it may be. Yeah. So we I mean we buy most of these paintings from very wealthy people. Um we'll buy them direct. Sometimes we'll buy buy through intermediaries or at auction, but we're we're doing more and more business with with collectors direct. Once we securitize it, we either have the painting sit in storage in a high-end art facility in Delaware, or we lend it out to museums on exhibition. And then eventually, three to 10 years later, we sell the painting. We've also launched secondary markets now, so people are now trading securities in these paintings, just like they would trade shares in a company. But that's that's kind of how to think about the evolution of us buying a painting to, to eventually selling a painting. Got it. Now that you brought up museums, I mean, that's the first place that I think about when it comes to, I'm going to go and look at art. I would go to a gallery, a museum, which those pieces probably aren't securitized. Have you thought about working with some of the bigger museums to try and securitize their artwork and maybe be like, hey, you'll get a percent based off your ticket sales or whatever it may be to try and open up you know, some of the best art pieces, I guess, or the ones that are maybe most well-known? One of the challenges that museums have is, is just a general challenge around engagement, bringing people in the community back over time. Uh, our hypothesis is that if people own a portion of a painting, particularly if it's in a museum, they'll come back to the museum more, more often. 
So we're working with a few different institutions now to test that test that hypothesis. But I, I think it's interesting over time. Like I think ways that museums can can better engage with the community, bring people in and educate them are are important. Yeah. So tell me right now, with everything that's going on with the economy, like what do you think is going to happen over the next couple of years with art? I mean, I know I was reading some great quotes around like you were talking about inflation and, you know, art is not correlated with the S&P like other things are. And so this is actually a great asset to invest in right now. But give me some more details around like how you're thinking about this investment, especially with, you know, where we're at today, December 2022. Yeah, I mean, look, th- this has been a crazy year with, without question, and we've, we've been trying from a research perspective to understand all these different dynamics from obviously interest rates, inflation, but also things like, like currency devaluations in particular regions where we, we buy artists or where there's, there's strong artist demand. We just recently went through the November sales season in the art market, which is, is the biggest sales season where most, most volume happens. And to be honest, it was better better than we expected. The Paul Allen collection sold, which a lot of people have read about. It was $1.5 billion. It was the biggest single owner sale ever. So that exceeded expectations. But I think, I think generally prices are holding up. Now, I don't think that this year art as an asset class or, or the Masterworks portfolio specifically has performed as well as it has in prior years. Uh, you know, I think um, if you look historically, our portfolio overall was appreciating it around 22% a year gross for the for the past four years. I think this year will be around double digits. Still great. Um, we, don't, <laughs> we don't know exactly yet, but compared to any other asset class, that's that's still great, right? Um, I think the only thing that's really performed, outperformed art this year is probably energy. But you know the data is still still to come as we as we near the end of the year. Yeah, so it seems beneficial to have at least a piece of that as your portfolio. How do you find your new customers? Because I mean, it seems easy to go after the people who are already really involved when it comes to investing. I mean, if they have the Titan app, they probably you know would be interested in looking at mass. I have the Titan app. That's why I'm like yeah. they they show me things like this where it's like oh you should get into this. And I'm like okay sounds good. You're smart. I've I've heard that portfolios on the Titan app have not performed well. <laughs> Mine have done great, but you know it's probably because of my expert allocation. I don't know if if someone went on there and put 100% crypto this year, like that's their own fault. But mine have done okay. But for something like that, at least where it would maybe show you something and you already have a trusted consumer base there who might kind of go with it. But how do you expand outside of people who maybe, you know, are used to this like all the time? Like, how do you get to like, yeah, the newer people? We don't really have, so we have 600,000 plus investors on the platform now. Um, we don't really have anyone on the platform that, that I would consider a quote unquote art collector. These are really self-directed investors, people interested in learning about finance, new asset classes. Frankly, people who are upset with how their financial advisors performed this year. Those are our, our typical investors. Um, so we reach them primarily through online marketing. So we just run different ads all, all, all over the internet. And then we schedule a thousand phone calls a day with our financial advisor team who educate investors on a one-by-one basis on the art market, how to think about risk, how to think about returns, um, and make recommendations. Got. Do you have to be accredited or anything, or can it just be anyone? Yeah. So the co- the cool thing about how we built the business is all of these offerings. Uh, each painting is a is a public offering filed and qualified with the SEC. So anyone can invest in these securities. It's the same type of investor protections that exist with um, with public companies. So it it really allows anyone to participate in an asset class that otherwise was was previously unavailable. Mm, that's awesome. I want to ask you what is maybe something that many people don't know about Masterworks or 
Yeah, just you're like, more people need to know about this piece or something that we're doing behind the scenes or whatever it is. You know, I think I think when we think about the biggest challenges to investing in art, we tend to think about liquidity, honestly, because when you look at the performance of the asset class over the past 25 years, it's outperformed the S&P. As, as you mentioned, it lacks correlation. The biggest issue that most investors have is I don't they, they don't really want to wait three to 10 years for us to sell the painting which is why we introduced secondary markets so investors can can trade shares uh, with each other to get out of paintings early if they if they need to. That's really I see where I see our focus over the next couple of years is building out secondary markets so there's more instant like liquidity in these securities than there is today. That's kind of a lot of stuff that we're working on behind the scenes that I think a lot of people don't see on the platform, but that that that's a core product focus for us going forward. Yeah, well that's smart. So Another thing I want to kind of like shift over to, I know I mentioned this earlier around all these things we're seeing around, you know, AI right now. I mean, you, you look at Instagram, you see everyone's avatars and all like you see the chat stuff that's going on. And just there's so many things in that market right now that are, you know, evolving very quickly. And of course, I think about how does that impact art? I mean, outside of maybe NFTs, because I feel like that's just such a roller coaster of an area to focus on right now. But like, how do you see that evolving over the next like five to 10 years when it comes to, is this something that you guys are looking into or thinking about? Well, I guess when we think about how, how are things evolving, we tend to think about two different buckets. The, the first bucket is, is price. And the, there's actually interesting parallels with this in NFTs as well. The, the first bucket is price and the second bucket is cultural significance. When we look at artist markets or we look at new types of art, we tend to think about those, those two things separately. With NFTs, the, the struggle that we always had and the reason why we never recommended NFTs on, on the Masterworks platform was we couldn't, first of all, I think despite a lot of the, the headlines in the press, the volatility in, in NFT prices were very high. So yes, you saw some NFTs go from $10,000 to $10 million, but you saw thousands of NFTs that would sit on marketplaces and never be sold to begin with. So we, we were never really comfortable in, in sort of the volatility of that market. But we also, frankly, struggled with the cultural significance. And one of the, the best indicators for cultural significance, at least in the world we live in today, is do museums collect that, that art? Um, museums for centuries have really been the tastemakers around what is considered good art, what is considered culturally significant art, and that kind of feeds the art world over time. So I think the thing with, with generative art, with, with AI art, is how do we think about the cultural significance of that? Is it something that's necessarily you know, new, revolutionary? Will museums collect it? Will, will important collectors buy it? Will it be exhibited with other important artists? I think AI art is so new, nobody really knows how to think about it. I think opinions on NFTs have changed dramatically over the past year. You know, If we were having this conversation a year ago, I think we'd be talking about are, are NFTs culturally significant? I think sentiment is is different today, but but those are the two ways that we we would think about it. Yeah. I mean, when I look at all the stuff that's happening right now, I do agree that to me, if AI is generating anything, eventually it'll be commoditized and people will be like, I mean, is this even well thought out? Like to me, humans are still always going to be the most creative. I mean, even the best AI only comes from really great inputs. And even then it might lack character and personality that would have gone into just something, you know, someone would have created on their own while they're at their lake house and, you know, having inspiration from whatever's around them. Yeah, that's how I'm viewing him. Yeah. I think that's right. I think, it's, it, I think it's hard to figure out how is AI generated art culturally significant. 
I don't know exactly. And there'll be so much. You'll be able to type in anything and you'll just have it coming at you all day around like all these kind of arts. And you'll be like, mm, I think I'm just going to focus back on Banksy or something that I actually know his style. <laughs> like it's just, yeah, it seems like we have too much coming at us in the coming years that a lot of that might get filtered out. I think it's super cool. I, I, I don't know how it impacts the art market though. We haven't, we haven't really seen anything as of yet. Yeah. What about ownership? I mean, to me, that's an interesting piece when it comes to if you're using blockchain to be able to showcase who actually owns the art when it's, you know, a piece of, do you guys already use that? Cause that always is to me of like, while crypto is being crazy and has all these movements going on with it, blockchain is still, I think like super usable for, you know, so many things around ownership or at least Ethereum or some kind of smart contract. Yeah. There's been lots of companies that have started in the, in the blockchain space to, to think about art in the context of authenticity um, or title, which effectively is ownership. We don't use any of those platforms today, mainly because most of the paintings that we're buying are multi-million dollar paintings. They're in the catalog resume of the artist. They've been exhibited in a museum. So there's not really a question around title or, or authenticity. Um, I do think some of those startups are interesting. I think a lot of them have, have again, kind of in today's environment, sort of lost, lost traction somewhat. But we, you know, we could see that change in the future. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Does anyone ever ask you to basically provide them the ability to like showcase the art on their wall? Like, hey, I want to be able to have a photo frame and my one one thousand, one one hundred, whatever it is, percent that I own of <laughs> the Mona Lisa, I actually want it on my wall until I sell it. And then it's taken away from me and my picture frame is empty. So a digital picture frame that showcases my ownership. What do you think? Yeah. We, <laughs> so, we, so we get that question all the time. Oh, really? Okay. I'm your consumer. <laughs> Literally every day from an investor. Um, we do want to build out that feature at some point. It's, you know, the challenge as a company is we have 205 employees and we have lots of priorities that are always conflicting. But that one is one that we, <laughs> we, would, love, we would love to solve for at some point. I'm glad that other people are thinking like me. Sometimes I put these random <laughs> ideas out to my guests and they just look at me and they're like, no, never heard that before. I'm like, mm, okay, well, I shot my shot. So <laughs> what are you most excited about? I mean, over the coming years, like what are maybe other than, you know, the things that you mentioned on here around like the stuff that maybe your customers don't see every day that you're working on, what are some maybe moonshot projects that you guys are working on or just, you know, big hairy projects that you're like, I don't know if this will work or not, but we're really, like, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. I mean, I think the trend that I think is exciting and it's not necessarily a product that we're working on, but it, but it's a trend that I think a lot of people aren't, aren't thinking about is how alternative assets are going to play a role in portfolios in the coming years or decades. 
And if you just take a step back and think about sort of the retail investor experience over the past 10 years, retail investors have have come to rely on double-digit returns in public equities. They've never had to deal with inflation before. They really haven't dealt with rising interest rates. And I think the next decade is going to be very different. So if you look at almost every major private bank, they're guiding investors to think about public equity returns over the next 10 years somewhere in the mid single digits, right? Anywhere between four four and 6%. That's a total game changer for most investors, right? Most people have not thought about that at all. They haven't planned from a financial perspective for that to happen. And I think what that'll cause is that'll cause investors, financial advisors, really everyone to start looking for alternatives to public equities and fixed income. So I think not only for Masterworks, but for a lot of other firms like us in different asset classes, that that's a really interesting trend that isn't isn't totally appreciated yet. Yeah. If you were to get outside of Masterworks and you go into other industries, like what are underappreciated assets that you're watching? I mean, I know I was like stumbling on whiskey and like buying barrels of whiskey and or bourbon or whatever it might be. Like there's so many things out there that I think I don't even know about. But what are I mean, this is your space. What are you watching? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a hard question, right? Like, the, there's there's so many asset classes right now that that are in pretty bad positions. It's 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 hard to conclude when when there are opportunities or not. Like, I I do think that Bitcoin specifically is still interesting. You know, there's there's uh, the Greystone Trust, which is trading at a at a massive discount to NAV um, out of investor concerns about about a whole, a whole bunch of things. I think that's that's interesting. I think distressed credit is interesting. I think real estate is concerning. I've never really been a believer in gold, you know, so so that's, I guess, some high-level thoughts. Okay. So why is real estate? All the other things, I'm like, yes, yes. Distress credit, I'm a little like, oh, I used to work at Fannie Mae, so that one scares me a little bit. <laughs> like, I don't know about that one, but I'll watch you, Scott, do that one. But tell me about real estate. I'm sure a lot of people listening are always, I mean, everyone's always interested in real estate. And you keep yeah. hearing right now, 2023 is your time. You better hop in and buy in 2023. Like, why do you think it's concerning? Yeah, I think it's concerning just because I, I don't. There, there's always been this comment, which I've never personally understood. I, I, I've asked friends who who have been in real estate a long time about this, but but there's you know this comment that real estate, because it's a real asset, is an inflation hedge. I don't think that's true, right? Like as interest rates go up, people can't afford to make their payments, so asset prices go down. So I think if we're living in a world where today thirty-year mortgage rates are whatever seven percent. I think the next year, real estate prices come down dramatically, and I don't think they they bounce back right away. So I think I think that's just a very concerning part of of the economy right now that 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 hasn't actually changed in value yet. Got it. Wouldn't it mostly be concerning for people? I mean, once again, going back to my Fannie Mae days, all the people who would be in arms potentially who are not expecting the rate increase. But if someone's actively going into a 7% interest rate and they hopefully have done the math and their income remains the same, I mean, to me, they're just in, what do you think? In today's world, there's buying a house that's half the value as it was before, right? Because the, the cost of that mortgage payment is, is twice as much. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you talk to a lot of people and they're like, you can just refi in a couple months or a couple years. Like you can get into it now, turn into an Airbnb and then refi in three years. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. I think the opposite is true too, right? A lot of people that locked in 30-year rates at 2%, the challenge with that is that you could have a house now, which is worth 25% less that you're making mortgage payments on. So we'll see how this shakes out. But I think real estate in general is, is I'm cautious on it right now. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, unless you're in Austin, I will say Austin's still <laughs> mostly pretty good. I mean, it feels pretty stable to me. <laughs> yeah. I think Austin's Austin's an exception. I, I used to live in Aspen, which I think is an exception too. Yeah. I mean, okay. So we have two places, people. You heard it first. <laughs> maybe or maybe don't go invest in real estate. I don't know. We can't really tell you. <laughs> yeah. Two, two places where 99.9% of the world doesn't live. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So, I mean, it's interesting thinking about what goes on the Masterworks platform, like how you guys even go about curating and picking these pieces of art. Like what is in your own personal algorithm when you come and you're like, this one's going to do well or this one's not? Like what factors do you look for? or How do you know if something's going to perform? I mean, it's getting quite complicated. So we have a uh, we have a research team whose primary job is to choose which artist markets we go into. And then we have an acquisitions team that goes out and sources paintings in those those particular artist markets. So our research team is looking at signals that we think will cause artist markets to appreciate into the future. You know, historically, that used to be looking at momentum-like data. Those, those models are getting more complex now. We have some basic ML models built, um, other types of models that, that help us try to understand different, different trends or different ways of looking at artist markets. Today, I think we're, we're buying in about 100, 110 different artist markets. So that, that number is up 20 or 30 from probably this, this time last year. And then our acquisitions team is looking at six, $700 million of art a month that's offered to us from those 110 artist markets. So we're very, you know, we're very selective with, with what we buy. I think we're still buying two, three, 4% of what we see, but it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty incredible process. Like there's nobody else in the art market that's using data like we're using, right? Like most people in the art market are ultra wealthy families that are buying these one to $10 million paintings, trading them between each other. Uh, there's, there's no one that really has like the infrastructure that we do around research and data to predict how these art, artist markets will perform, or frankly, just just the sourcing ability with our acquisitions team to look at as, as much art as we look at. Got it. What about when it comes to like trends? I mean, with, you know, changing age groups, maybe comes different preferences, whereas these wealthy families who've had, you know, a piece of art in their family for, I don't know, 80 years, it comes to me and I'm like, no, I don't want that. Like, how do you think about kind of evolving and getting, you know, younger people maybe involved in this too, but then seeing that maybe they have a whole different preference for art than what, you know, is actually being valued really high and just traded among the wealthy? Yeah. So we see it. I mean, it's a really good question. So we see it in macro data and then we see it in specific artist markets. So if you look at the macro data over, you know, kind of going back to my comment about hundreds of years ago, what, what you see is that artist markets depreciate over very wide periods of time. So for example, Rembrandt today, an old master who was painting hundreds of years ago, his market is basically appreciating with inflation. Claude Monet, an impressionist, you know, from whatever, 100 plus years ago, his market is appreciating at 6 to 7% a year. And then art created after World War II or art created in the last 75 years, that segment of the market is appreciating at 14 or 15% a year. So, so what that tells you very broadly is that in generational increments, art falls out of favor and appreciation rates decline. So the type of painting that you want to buy is not the same type of painting that, that your grandparents wanted to buy, but it happens over very long periods of time. So it doesn't, it doesn't typically happen in years or even decades. It really happens over, over generations. We do then, from, a, from an individual artist market perspective, see some trends. So for example, Banksy's market over the past couple of years was clearly being driven by new people into the art market who had not really collected before, who had a lot of money, 
an, an example of an artist market where we we saw new collectors coming in who were very wealthy and buying these paintings for the first time, whereas people who are whatever, you know, 60, 70, 80, 80 years old are probably not collecting Banksy. Do you know who Banksy is? Do we know now? Does anyone know? <laughs> there's, there's, there's rumors. There's rumors. What do you think? Do you think you know who, which, who it is? I, I don't. I don't know. You don't look into this. That would be like number one job today. <laughs> Coming to work, figure out who this person is. <laughs> we have to get all of our Banksy's authenticated, so we, we get that authenticated in some way, shape, or form. But oh, okay. I think I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, does artwork ever like? come back in style where it's like something super old all of a sudden like what's old is new again it's back from 150 years ago does that ever happen or not really yeah it definitely happens i mean there, there's been a movement in particular over the past um five six seven years to revisit art history particularly with female artists identity artists african-american artists um that that were overlooked um collected by institutions at the time but whose prices really haven't kept up with um with the rest of the market so we, we've seen that, like artists like um, Joan Mitchell, for example, who was an important ABEX artist who was painting in the 1950s, 1960s. Her paintings were selling for $2 million uh, maybe 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, well, her peers, who were men who were painting at the time, their paintings were selling for $50 million, $75 million, $100 million in some cases. So her market today has come up pretty dramatically. I think her price record was around... 17 or 18 million now. So we do we do see that. I think it's more a process of revisiting art history and trying to to normalize things on behalf of museum directors and and collectors. So to, it, that that is happening in a big way. Oh, that's cool. I could see it being really interesting bringing certain people back, like only curating and highlighting the ones where you're like, hmm, they didn't get enough love. And that's actually like that whole topic or trend is still relevant today, even if people didn't know about whoever that person was. Yeah, it's amazing. Like there's artists like like Sam Gilliam who who most people have probably not heard of, but Sam was was painting in the 1970s collected by almost every major museum. You know, his market was still even after that something like $10,000 a painting. Wow. Go Sam. And now in the in in the past 3 or 4 years, you know, his his paintings are selling for a million, million and a half. So yeah, there's some art, artist markets that have just changed really really dramatically. Yeah. It, I mean, it's it's interesting thinking about when someone creates a piece of art like that, how they could get the upside for when it resells. Like, how could you have ownership in your piece to where you could then have, okay, a cut or a commission on like, okay, it's now gone through like 20 different owners. I should be able to have a piece of that. Have you guys thought about that? I forget where I was hearing about this concept, of course, talking about when it was, it was around blockchain, I'm sure, but they're talking about like how to basically give someone ownership, even when it's resold. Yeah, there's resale royalties in, in France specifically. So some countries actually enact laws that, that that allow artists to benefit as part of that resale. It doesn't exist in the US though. Okay. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Well, Scott, this was super fun. Thank you for educating me on this whole market. Masterworks and everything you're doing there sounds amazing. So for anyone who wants to get involved, they want to invest, where can people go to do that? www.masterworks.com. Just click on request access, uh, schedule a call with one of our financial advisors and they'll get you started. All right. You might see my email come through there sometime this week. So give me the best advisor. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Stephanie. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. 
See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.